produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon. This is Free Culture Radio. Read an op-ed recently published in the Toronto Globe and Mail April 22nd entitled In Defense of Drug Dealers' Humanity. Brilliant, thought-provoking, it, it really is a must-read. It was written by Hilary Agro, an anthropology PhD student at the University of British Columbia, and she's on Zoom with me now. Hilary, welcome. Hello, Doug. Nice to be here. I start by telling listeners a little more about yourself and your work. What's the focus of your research? So my current research project is on anti-drug war activism. So basically, most of us are pretty well aware that the war on drugs, um, you know, is a failure in every way except the way that it's a success, which is lining the pockets of the prison industrial complex. Um, and so the people who are trying to... Um, change drug laws and end drug prohibition, you know, as every form of social change that we've ever seen is it's driven by activists. So um, whereas my previous research project was about um, drug use and drug users, now it's more about um, activism among people who use drugs to change the laws uh, that are impacting them and us. Actually, there's a lot of stuff I would love to ask you about about that, but I wanted to get to this to this op-ed, so I'm sticking to mm-hmm. the subject here. Your op-ed, the in defense of drug dealers' humanities, and what's that about? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I basically, long story short, recently I got into some some stuff happened on Twitter that ended up with me on Fox news and uh, you can make the long, this is a, this sounds good. So you can make this a long story too. You've got the whole show. Go for a, it. Yeah. It's an interesting story for sure. So Michelle Tandler is this um, Silicon Valley heiress, you know, rich person with her head up. And, um, Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I shouldn't swear. Um, and, uh, you know, she was, you know, there's all this, uh, rhetoric about like San Francisco and like uh, unhoused people and people uh, who use drugs uh, using out on the street. And, you know, the reason for uh, the the problems that are happening in San Francisco right now is because of like housing and like mass um, problems under capitalism, creating a, a, an environment where people can't afford to live. Um, but she, uh, decided to say that her idea for fixing quote unquote, you know, the drug problem in San Francisco is that we should publicly lynch fentanyl dealers, um, which is really just continuing along and, and, you know, rich tradition of white women calling for, uh, the genocide of, um, poor people of color. Um, yeah, so I disagree that lynching fentanyl dealers uh is something that we should do um to address the overdose crisis uh i disagree not only uh because it won't work and it doesn't you know you know it's just another intense form of prohibition and people have tried that all over the world and it doesn't actually work to stop people from using drugs um but it's also morally abhorrent because lynching is bad can't believe we have to have that conversation But uh, anyways, I pointed out that this was a a terrible idea and it's morally abhorrent. Um, And in the process of pointing that out, I 
used uh, the term drug workers to refer to drug dealers. And this is, um, you know, it's not meant to imply that everyone everywhere who sells drugs is a worker, but it's it's meant to encapsulate the fact that um, people are caught up in this system of like often wage labor uh, in the, the underground economy. And um, conservatives did not like that. <laughs> They uh, they latched onto me, completely ignored all the points that I was making about like the war on drugs being a massive racist failure and, and you know, all that kind of thing um, and really latched onto the term drug workers. And so I was piled on. I was harassed. I ended up on Fox News, although it's really funny because when you watch the clip, they had a hard time making me look bad because they read out my entire tweet and it was so reasonable. Um, but uh, I got like I got threats and you know I, I got all this uh harassment and the globe and mail which is um the largest canadian newspaper it's an international newspaper they actually a, an editor from the globe and mail reached out to see if i would write a piece explaining what the heck i was talking about uh defending you know drug dealers because a lot of people have this conception that drug dealers are the problem um and you know i've been studying this problem for a very long time i know drug dealers i know drug users i have studied this issue on an academic level through my PhD research and on an on the ground level through all of the people that I know who work in these industries. And um, I'm not saying that all drug dealers are, you know, the world's greatest people, um, but many of them are very caring people who actually don't want, you know, who, who care very much about the fentanyl problem, who don't want their friends overdosing. Um, they're they're just people like anybody else. Some of them uh, are working really hard to try to keep their neighbors safe. Um, some of them are selling this stuff because, um, you know, they're trapped in the system. Maybe they have criminal convictions that make it so that it's impossible for them to find work, uh, to find other work. Um, and yeah, some of them are exploited of like, uh, like we have exploited of people in, in any industry. But anyways, um, I was able to write this piece, basically just defending the basic humanity of treating, uh, all people, but drug dealers included, as if they are human beings, which is not to excuse any, um, you know, negative actions that any human being does, but just recognizing that somebody is a human being um, is the first step towards dealing with a problem and, and actually looking at the subtleties and the complexities of a problem, because you have to understand a problem like the overdose crisis in order to address it properly. And if you're not treating the people involved in this problem like human beings, then yeah, you're going to end up doing things like suggesting lynching, which is bad. <laughs> so, yeah. And I just, I just checked on the, uh, I just, I just checked this, this overprivileged um, person. There we go. From, uh, from the, that you're responding to 80,000, nearly, nearly 80,000 followers on Twitter. So it wasn't like yeah. this was just some rando. This is someone who's yeah. got an actual platform. Fascism is popular these days. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of scary. But, um, you know, I've got 54,000 followers. So uh, people, people are also uh, looking for alternative answers to those that are being offered by rich influential people who can buy their way into newspapers and so it's good that at least some reason um was was seen by an editor at the globe and mail and somebody actually uh cared enough to see 
what else I had to say about it, because that was the 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 the, the real sad thing about the right wing response was that uh, none of them were really engaging with the, the substance of my arguments. They were just using it as an opportunity to be like, oh, social justice warriors want us to call drug dealers, drug workers. And it's like, oh, OK, can we can we actually talk about the problem? Because I, I care about people um, who are struggling with addiction. I care about people who are at risk of overdoses. I I I really want us to talk about that problem, but no, it just has to be another, you know, um, yet another part of the culture war. Um, but it's it's good for us to be aware of these things and not not let people who are doing culture warrior. Oh, I'm so sorry, I keep swearing. Um, who are doing that kind of thing? Who are who are doing culture warrior stuff? Um, to not let them set the terms of discussion. We're going off. Um, so this passage. From your, this passage from your op-ed, it really resonated with me. It's, quote, Challenging one's preconceived beliefs about a contentious social issue is an uncomfortable process, but the continued propagation of fear, anger, and inaccurate stereotypes only benefits the proponents of the failed war on drugs. This framing gets them votes and funds bloated police departments rather than community services, housing, and health care. End quote. I started out in drug policy decades ago as a marijuana legalizer. I've, I've never been a libertarian. Um, but it still didn't take me long to realize we had to legalize more than just marijuana. Now, I, I'm certainly not the first, and I'm, or, and I'm definitely not the only one to come to that conclusion. But this, unfortunately, there's this marijuana exceptionalism that persists among some reformers. Well, marijuana exceptionalism and psychedelic exceptionalism. I mean, even some libertarians I know are guilty of it, are horribly dismissive of people who use any other substances, really. Um, the ones they'd use. Um, so, there's, so two questions really. One is, what kind of framing should we be using? And and the other is, you know, how do we get fellow reformers, people who should bloody know better, um, to stop propagating those negative stereotypes? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, both both are are good questions. And yeah, th- th- there's a really uh, kind of a neat thing about drug policy work is that it makes so much sense that you can get a lot of different people on board with it. Um, you know, you take an issue like police abolition or land back, and that that can be trickier to talk to people about, even though all of these issues are connected. But with drug policy, there's kind of something for everyone. So if you're talking to a libertarian, you know, libertarians, I, I will give them that, that drug policy tends to be the one issue that... Um, that they get right, they they really do, and you know, no no hate to any libertarians who are listening. Um, I have a lot of respect for uh, some of the um, tenets of that ideology. You know, uh, as somebody who cares about uh, personal freedom and liberty and all that kind of thing, I just um, also come from a perspective where uh, communities are are important, and we are an interreliant uh, species, so it can't just be about individuals. Um, in any case. They, uh, most of them seem to understand that we do need to legalize uh, all drugs because people should have the right to put what they want in their own body. It's a consciousness liberty issue. Um, There are overlaps with feminism, you know, like bodily autonomy. Basically, the idea that anybody else should be able to tell you or I what we can put in our own bodies under the threat of state violence is 
is quite absurd and 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 the you know people give different arguments against this like well yeah but what if what you take makes you violent and whatever and there's there's ways to rebut all of those things but um i do think that the uh, the framing of consciousness like consciousness liberty um is something that can get a lot of people on board um there's also the framing of just uh pointing to the abject failure of the war on drugs to meet any of its stated goals when you look into the war on drugs then you realize that oh no it it actually is 100% meeting its stated goals it's been a massive success in the actual goals of um reinforcing race, racial subjugation and like continuing uh slavery and jim crow you know, through uh, through mass incarceration and making sure that um, black communities uh, in the U.S. are uh, politically disenfranchised and uh, basically giving the state via police an excuse to arrest and imprison anybody that they want. Uh, the history of drug policy in Canada is really similar. It was uh, our first drug laws came about because of... Um, uh, well, it's it's a long another long book good story, but I'll I'll keep it short here. Uh, basically, just a, as a way to um, uh, further uh, colonialism and uh, ensure that uh, Chinese laborers in Canada were um, you know selectively discriminated against. When you have a drug law that applies to everybody, but everybody does drugs, so cops can't get everybody. It allows them to choose who they want to arrest. Um, so you know if if you are talking to somebody who actually has a sense of like sort of social justice or like workers' rights, you can use that kind of framing, the fact that it's like racist and colonial and all that. But at at its core, the thing that should appeal to anybody is why should anybody else say what I should put uh, in my own body? Now, um, if you can, then the framing of like, like you mentioned it in that quote, well, who do these drug policies help like who, like if they're obviously not helping they're not fixing anything so why are they still in place when they make no sense if you if you if you poke at a drug law the logic behind a drug law the whole thing falls apart instantly it's not keeping anybody safe it's not based on like health and wellness like if our drug laws were based on whether or not a drug was good or bad for you then alcohol would be illegal and mushrooms would be legal but that's not the case because that's not what our drug laws are based on so if you if you look at all the money that's going into the war on drugs, which is the other important framing, is like where is the money going? Billions of dollars going to the militarization of police, going to, you know, um, military interventions and, and paramilitary interventions in Latin America, supposedly to uh, go after cocaine supplies, and in Afghanistan to go after opium supplies. All of this money is being flushed down the toilet. Um, when the actual root of all of the problems that come from drugs, most of them are actually from drug prohibition in the first place. Like the, the overdose crisis is a product of prohibition. And I talk about this in the article, but basically um, it's because of the iron law of prohibition, which states that you're never going to get rid of any drug. Every time you try to crack down on a drug, all you do is incentivize the market to make that drug stronger, more compact, and more easy to distribute. So in when uh, alcohol prohibition <clears throat> existed in the U.S., it never got rid of alcohol. Everyone knows that, right? Like it was the roaring 20s. Like 
<clears throat> you can't you can't just stamp out a drug that people want to use. But what happened was because it's easier to transport liquor than it is to transport beer or wine because it's stronger. That's what was being made and transported. And that also made it so that it was uh, more unsafe because manufacturing those things is more unsafe and um, there's more things that can go wrong. And so that we're seeing that exact same thing play out with heroin prohibition. When you prohibit uh, opium, you're not going to get rid of opium. You're just going to make it so that people will use a stronger drug that's more easy to transport and hide. And so that led to heroin. When people are cracking, when the cops are cracking down on heroin, then people are going to instead find ways to make that drug even stronger, even easier to transport so that they don't get busted because the demand is still there because you're not actually doing anything about the demand for this drug. And what that does, um, what that did was uh, incentivize the fentanyl crisis. So the reason that we're seeing fentanyl, fentanyl now is because it's 100 times stronger than heroin. So you need to bring around with you when you're transporting it 100 times less. So obviously it's going to be easier um, to and, and more profitable to sell that than it is to sell heroin. There's a few more reasons that it's mostly replaced heroin. Um, so the idea that prohibition, that like cracking down on, on drug dealers and everything is going to do anything is not only false, it's actually the reason that we have all these dangerous drugs in the first place. And so all of this money, and so all of this is to say that um, the other really important thing to understand is, okay, so cracking down on drugs doesn't make, doesn't work, it doesn't get rid of them, it doesn't make people stop doing them. Well, what does that? Why are the reasons people are using fentanyl in the first place? Because there's a pain crisis. There's a crisis among our entire society of pain, of trauma, of pain from, uh, you know, chronic illness and injury, from people being overworked, of um, like psychic uh, and, and emotional pain, from people being traumatized by the conditions that we're living under, pain from alienation, the fact that we, you know, people have to worry about things that no human being should ever have to worry about getting getting shot and you know not having access to healthcare and going into debt and and you know people are afraid of their own neighbors this is a it's a pain crisis and so the only ways to actually address this crisis and to get people if if your goal is to get people to use fewer drugs um then we should be addressing the reasons that people are using in the first place and that's it's we're never going to um address that unless we address the material conditions that are people that people are living in that are leading them to seek out drugs in the first place um and so this is a really long-winded answer to these two questions but basically this gets back to well if the billions of dollars that are right now going towards funding police departments and funding paramilitaries and all this kind of thing to fight the war on drugs which just like the war on terror you can't win a war against like a concept um Imagine what would happen if all of that money was going towards communities, community services, mental health services, physical health services, actually creating the conditions um, for human beings to flourish, green spaces in cities, public transit, you know, um, all of that money could be going towards creating a society that people want to live in, that people don't want to escape from because they feel good being sober in it. Um, that said, we're never going to get rid of drugs entirely because even in a, a, a good you know, place where people are, are living well, people still have an interest in consciousness alteration. But 
I think it's really important for us to be able to just imagine um, and then work towards a society um, that actually takes care about people. This is my conversation with Hilary Agro, an anthropology PhD student at the University of British Columbia and a researcher whose studies include drug policy, activism, and the harms of prohibition. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. This show is episode number 81. Free culture is nearing its seventh anniversary on radio. And no, I don't know how we've made it this far either. But I digress. In the original intro to the show, I say that Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved with drugs. Now, the second part of that, about being involved with drugs, now, obviously that includes people who use drugs. It also includes people who work in drugs, you know, make them, produce them, sell them. Now, I thought that was obvious, but I think I need to be clearer about that. You know, people who use drugs, people who work in drugs, and the key word there is people. People with dignity who should be afforded respect just like any other person, just like we demand for ourselves. Well, I am a person who uses drugs, so I demand that for myself, but never mind. I don't think that's controversial. I think it sounds really obvious. It's obvious to me, but not to everyone. You were talking about this Twitterversy out there. that, um, mm-hmm. And I, you're... you're yeah, I've got your reply in front of me. That's kind of violent rhetoric against drug workers is abhorrent. Most fentanyl sellers are people who use it as well. They're trying to survive under the same destructive racist system that replaced opium with morphine, then heroin, then fentanyl, the war on drugs, end quote. And now, if you said that at a plenary speech at a reform conference, you get a standing ovation, and rightly so, and I hope you'll have the chance to do that soon. Um, mm-hmm. But still, that phrase, drug workers, it hit a nerve, especially among folks who won't even acknowledge the humanity of people who use drugs. I mean, and even some reformers. It's that marijuana exceptionalism again. How do we get folks who, I mean, who agree on the basics, how do we get them to examine some of their biases and, and just do better? Yeah, that's that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> you know, as a public educator, I, I ask myself that question every day. Um, and I think that what what I have landed on is, you know, we to get to get somebody to examine a bias um, and and do better, they have to first feel uh, safe enough to do so. Um, so number one is we have to create an environment um, where you know it's okay to. Uh, where people aren't like mocked for for being wrong um, or for having questions um, and also be able to um, agree on things first, right? Like so so to bu- building solidarity is a basic component of of doing social change work. To get anything done, you're always going to be working with people who don't agree with you on everything. And Figuring out the parts that we agree on is always the the first part of of any conversation, and and to be able to say, okay, well, like, what what do we agree on here? Um, do we agree that like people are people? That can be a difficult one because if you're talking to somebody who has dehumanized uh, people who use drugs um, to such an extent that they don't even see them as as people who are worthy of like dignity and care, then like that's a whole other conversation. But if we agree that like, you know, people who use drugs deserve uh, to live and deserve um, to be cared for, then like, okay, we can, we can work with that. We can, uh, we can move forward and talk about, well, um, if they deserve to be cared for, then maybe they also deserve uh, the dignity of being able to make choices about uh, their own bodies. 
Um, we can look at things like dehumanization. I think it's a really important question to uh, to ask and thing to look at is, so, you know, if you have like a marijuana exceptionalist or somebody who's like, yeah, plant medicine, whatever, but, you know, people shouldn't be able to use heroin and fentanyl. Um, or like those people are, are doing it to themselves or, you know, that all, all, all of the, the different ways that uh, people who use uh, manufacture or sell drugs are dehumanized. Why is that dehumanization happening? And I think that's such an important question because you can apply it to anything. You can apply it to, uh, you know, obviously black people have been dehumanized for centuries. Trans people are going through a, a terrifying um, ordeal right now. I mean, they they have for a long time in our society, but like right now in particular, the dehumanizing rhetoric against trans people is really ramping up. Um, immigrants, you know, uh, all sorts of all sorts of people are dehumanized in our society, and and people who use drugs are big one. Even people who call themselves progressives um, often tend to dehumanize uh, people who use different drugs from the ones that they do, because it, we should also acknowledge that, you know, the term drug user is pretty vague uh, when you're living in a society where everyone's a drug user. It's just that some people have access to a legal supply of their drugs via prescriptions and alcohol and caffeine, and other people don't. But the reason that this dehumanization happens is because the only way to get all of us workers, all of us in the working class, to fight amongst each other and blame each other for the problems that are being created by the owning class, by the people at the top with all the power, is to get us to dehumanize each other. It's extremely effective to get us to fight with each other and blame each other, blame immigrants, blame trans people, blame, blame drug addicts, whatever for the problems in society that are being caused by wealth inequality and power inequality and power, um, you know, the accumulation of power at the top. We live in a giant pyramid scheme. And this isn't like a, a, a conspiracy theory. It's just right out in the open. These people have so much power and money and the working class, the people that like do all the labor for our society don't have that. And so because it's so obvious and in front of our faces that this is unjust and because when people empathize with each other, they realize that, oh, our our lives are inter interrelated. We are dependent on each other. My actions and your actions, like we affect each other. We're, we're a social species. Everything that we do has impacts on each other. So if we work together, then we will actually live better than just like competing and, and fighting each other. The owning class can't have us doing that because every time that working class people build solidarity across lines of race and gender and, you know, consciousness and all this kind of thing, um, we rise up and we fight back and we take back power. And so they don't want us doing that. So they need to find ways of getting us to dehumanize each other so that we blame each other so that when people walk by an unhoused person on the street, they don't say, oh my God, why does this person not have anywhere to sleep but outside? This is not good. What's wrong with our society? We should fix this. Instead, they get people to dehumanize that person and say, oh, well, they deserve it because they're they're an addict and you know they should just work harder or, or whatever. The more that this dehumanization happens, we lose our own humanity. We lose our own connection to the things that that make us human and, and the way that we live in um, environments where we're all interconnected and my fate depends on your fate. And we're really seeing this happen with, you know, the climate crisis. We can't just 
offshore all of our all of our problems because we're you know um it's all coming back uh to bite us because climate change is going to be an equal well it's not going to be an equal opportunity thing but uh or destroyer that was my conversation with Hillary Agro, an anthropology PhD student at the University of British Columbia. Her op-ed, In Defense of Drug Dealers' Humanity, appeared in the Toronto Globe and Mail on April 22, 2023. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I thank my guest, Hillary Agro. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Dr. Faye saying so long. So long.